1: Hello, is the internet about to be cracked by quantum
2: computing? Quantum computers are really efficient at sort of certain problems. One of those, it just so happens, is reversing this prime number problem.
1: How artificial intelligence could be used to diagnose the need for lung transplants in patients with cystic fibrosis.
3: We are actually, with machine learning, identifying unique predictors for the individual.
1: And our technology correspondent, Hal Hodson, joins me to discuss some of the latest happenings in robotics.
0: Real people are going to come away from this thinking that we live in a world where robots can answer real questions from real politicians in real time. I'm Kenneth Couquier, a senior editor at The Economist, and
1: welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. First, could the rise of quantum computing destroy the Internet, and with it, the networked economy? There is a chance it might. The reason is because of the technical foundation of the Internet, and the internet security, is encryption or cryptography. Without it, credit card details, health records, passwords, and any personal information would zip around unprotected, open for anyone to see or steal. Yet encryption is based on elaborate maths that are hard for today's computers to break, but easily unraveled by a quantum computer. So the race is on to secure the network before quantum computers become more widespread. To discuss this, I'm joined in the studio with Tim Cross, the economist science correspondent. Hello, Tim. Hi, Ken. First, Tim, a primer. How does encryption work, and what is it?
2: So, um, I'm not classically educated, but I think it means something along the lines of secret writing. Actually,
1: that would not be encryption. That would be cryptography. Crypto, like cryptic, means mysterious, and graphy, graphics, means writing.
2: There you go. But how it works, it, it basically it boils down to a sort of mathematical curiosity, which is that there are some forms of math that work very well in one direction, that are easy in one direction, but very hard to reverse. And a lot of the cryptography we use these days is based on prime numbers. So if I give you a really large number and say this number is made up of, by multiplying two smaller prime numbers, we know of no efficient, quick way for you to work backwards and find out what those two numbers are and this is just sort of interesting fact is that I chose my words carefully we know of no good way we haven't proved that no good way exists and those aren't quite the same thing so in theory someone could you know, wake up tomorrow some mathematician and say, oh, I, you know, flash of inspiration. I've just figured out a way to work out the prime factors of large numbers. And at that point, we, we kind of have a problem because the whole system collapses. And in fact, that's already happened. So in 1994, a guy called Peter Shaw, who was working at Bell Labs, came up with an algorithm that basically does this, that lets you sort of efficiently reverse the, the prime number problem. The only snag was that to work on sort of usefully large numbers, you need to run his algorithm on a quantum computer. And at the time, of course, we didn't have any. So
1: what was it about a quantum computer that enabled it to crack public-key crypto so
2: efficiently? Well, so besides not being classically educated, I also don't have a degree in advanced number theory. (laughs) But… How did you get on this show? I just walked in, I think, and someone someone gave me a job. Um, But the basic thing, I think, the the basic point is that quantum computers are really efficient at sort of certain problems, only some problems, not all problems by any means. One of those, it just so happens, is reversing this prime number problem. And you can go and read Peter Shaw's paper and it relies on things like the quantum Fourier transform and so on. But I think for the purposes of this, all we need to know is that it does work. And it drastically reduces the time you need to crack this stuff from from sort of billions of years, literally, to maybe hours, maybe days, something like that.
1: But the key thing is that it's not that it's faster,
2: but that it does
1: a form of math that is really well tuned to actually uncovering these primes from the larger number.
2: On a fundamental level, it works in a different way from classical computers, and that lets you do these calculations much, much more quickly.
1: So we're screwed. So we're going to go back to a barter system in caves. What's what's the answer here?
2: Uh, Well, I mean, maybe, you know, um, for this at least, there is a bit of light. So there are other kinds of maths that are also one way, and that we also... think are hard to reverse, and as far as we know, there is no good way to do that reversal, whether you're using a classical machine or a quantum machine. Because I love math so much, hit me up on what some of these math techniques are. So I can spout things at you like structured lattices, unstructured lattices, super singular isogenies. But surely those could be cracked as well by either
1: quantum computings or next generation computing architectures.
2: We'll never say never, but at the moment, we don't think so. So you can move to these new sort of mathematical foundations, and we will be ideally back to where we are now with the internet.
1: So how much time do we have?
2: So there are various ways of measuring how powerful a quantum computer is, and none of them are perfect. But for whatever reason, the one people use most is the number of qubits it can manipulate. So a qubit is the quantum analog of a sort of standard bit, one or zero. And one estimate I heard from a, a guy called Brian Lamachia, who works on the cryptography team at Microsoft, is that things start to get cryptographically interesting, was the phrase he used, somewhere between 1,000 and 10,000 qubits. Now, at the moment, again, it's sort of fuzzy and, and, you know, it depends on definitions and so on, but we have a few dozen. And he said, if you're going to be conservative about this, you might think that, you know, maybe by 2035, 2040, that kind of timescale, we might have machines that are big enough to cause problems.
1: So is anything being done right now?
2: Having said that, you know, people are starting to to do some tests and, you know, people like Microsoft and Google and the sort of big internet companies are probably the best place to try and do something about this. So Google um, and another company called Cloudflare have been putting sort of quantum resistant cryptography into like test versions of Chrome and and, and seeing what that does. It takes longer sometimes to do the cryptography, but it seems to kind of mostly work, although not all websites will accept it. And there's an American standards agency called NIST, which tends to set the standards, as it were, for cryptography that most people uh, follow. They're running a competition at the moment to kick the tires on all these various different kinds of math that we talked about. They're not due to report till 2024, Um, So, (laughs) you know, very optimistic. Exactly. It's a big job. It moves slowly. But we probably need to start thinking about doing it now.
1: Tim, as we used to say in ancient Greece, alas. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. A small correction. Last week on the show, we discussed the impact of the IPCC report, and we called it the International Panel on Climate Change. It is, of course, not that. It is the intergovernmental panel on climate change. Our apologies. Next up, machine learning and cystic fibrosis. Newly published research has demonstrated that machine learning methods can predict with a 35% improvement in accuracy whether a cystic fibrosis patient should be referred for a lung transplant in comparison with existing statistical methods. I'm joined by Professor Michala Vandershar of the Alan Turing Institute and Oxford University to discuss this finding and what it means for the future of cystic fibrosis. Hello, Michala. Hello, Ken. So, first, what are the symptoms of cystic fibrosis for those who don't know?
3: So, uh, cystic fibrosis is a genetic disorder, and it has mutations in both copies of the gene for the cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator protein this is a mouthful, (laughs) but it provides ailments in lungs, but also kidneys, pancreas, as well as possibly other organs. So, how are lung transplants decided today? Today, they are decided on the basis of a metric called forced expiratory volume. And when the FEV, which is the forced expiratory volume, drops below 30%, then Patients are referred for lung transplantation. Okay, and with machine learning, we can have better accuracy on whether a lung transplant is needed. Indeed. We are able to identify that not only the FEV is important in determining deterioration of the lungs, but also other variables play an important role. For instance, oxygenation. And why couldn't we have learned that without machine learning? It is complicated because cystic fibrosis is a heterogeneous disease where multiple factors play a role and the different characteristics of the patient's are interacting with each other in a complicated way. So we really need new methods to identify what variables are important and how do they interact with each other for a specific patient to be able to predict the trajectory of disease of this specific patient. When you say it's for a
1: specific patient, are you saying that the machine learning algorithm looks at the unique patient data to identify the traits unique to that patient whether it needs an air transplant, or whether it's across the board, across all patients?
3: So we are actually, with machine learning, identifying unique predictors for the individual. So we are creating personalized prediction. We are looking at what are the unique interactions of the characteristics of this specific patient, and how those interactions are going to affect how the patient is going to do in the long run. So it's something that would have been too complicated before you need machine learning because you don't have
1: a generalizable rule, you have lots and lots of rules unique to each patient.
3: It is the heterogeneity of the patient. So for instance, if you look at statistical methods, which are looking at Linear interactions between the characteristics of a patient, these are not necessarily the case for a specific patient, where these interactions may be very different across the different variables and may often be nonlinear. So,
1: how soon do you think that this technique will be used?
3: I hope that this technique will only be used after thorough evaluation. I am currently together with a Cystic Fibrosis Trust, UK Cystic Fibrosis Trust, and a set of clinicians validating this particular algorithm. And I hope that it is indeed successfully validated. And only when we have this confirmation, I hope that it will be used to assist, not replace the judgment of the clinicians making the call to recommend the patient for the lung transplant. Can this technique be used for other disease types or other cases? I'm very happy you asked this, because this technique that we have developed, which we call autoprognosis, is on purpose designed to produce risk prediction for a variety of diseases. And in fact, we have applied it for cardiovascular disease as well as breast cancer. And I really hope to find additional collaborators to provide this type of methodology to build personalized risk scoring for hopefully many diseases. I hope that this becomes a platform to which clinicians and medical researchers can go to develop their own risk scoring for the specific disease that they are interested in. That's so interesting. Mihala. thank you very much. Thank you, Ken.
1: The big news in the robotics industry this week is that Rethink Robotics, a pioneer of collaborative robots, those are robots that can work safely beside humans, is shutting down after 10 years and despite $150 million in funding from investors. I'm joined by Hal Hodson, the economist technology correspondent, who's down the line in San Francisco at a coffee shop. So what was Rethink Robotics' contribution to the industry?
0: Uh, hi, Ken. I, the, the main thing that Rethink did was um, pioneering this idea of collaborative robots, robots that could work right next to humans in industrial settings. Normal industrial robots are kept behind big screens. Humans aren't allowed to go anywhere near them because they're dangerous, because they're too dumb to know when a human is anywhere near them. And what Rethink does, and what their founder, Rodney Brooks, would often demonstrate, is that if their arms, sort of while they're in motion, collide with a the human, they'll just stop moving and they won't hurt you at all. You, you'll barely even feel it. And Rodney Brooks used to demonstrate this by putting his head in the way of the arms and just sort of showing, look, it's safe. There's no problem.
1: Now, it was very brave of Rodney to do that. But the other brave thing he did as a corporate strategy was to create the robots that were cheapest chips. We're talking about $20,000 for a basic level robot. Yet still, it wasn't enough to keep them in business. What happened?
0: Well, I think it's somewhere down to the disconnect between, you know, people being very excited about robots and then when you actually get them, it being very hard to make a robot that does anything useful. Probably the most commercially successful sort of consumer robot is the Roomba or and ripoffs of the Roomba, which is just this little puck of a vacuum cleaner that... Drives around your living room and hoovers up stuff. It's it's really quite a simple function. It's very specific. You buy it, you know what it's going to do. What Rethink Robotics was trying to do was much more general. They wanted robots that could help you do anything you might find in an industrial factory, and and that was just a much harder thing to do. And, And I suspect that the integration of Rethink's robots, the sort of the software that runs in the background and sort of that ties everything together, I suspect that's where they were weak. And that you know it wasn't that their robots weren't clever or that their designs weren't good. It's that their sort of boring back end stuff that links the robot to business processes was not very good. And perhaps that's a reflection of um, Rodney Brooks's more academic background. But no one is arguing that Rethink's robots were not very advanced and very interesting.
1: Another robotics company in the news this week has been Boston Dynamics, and it is now owned by the Japanese communications giant SoftBank. It specializes in building robots that move more like humans or animals than the systems of metal pistons and levers that they are. They recently released a new video showing one of their robots, Atlas, leaping nimbly between obstacles in their warehouse. Now, some people watching this reacted with alarm. There's a huge metal robot navigating a complex environment with speed and apparent skill. They're coming to kill us all, many people think. That kind of thing. But Hal, you had a different reaction.
0: I did have a different reaction. And it's it's basically a concern that what you see in those videos is not really representative of the reality of what these robots can do. Now, I'm, I, I'm not saying that it's sort of fake or a spoof or anything like that. But I strongly suspect that when they put those robots in those videos, they're doing it in an environment that is set up to be just so, and the most the most recent video has Atlas kind of running and then vaulting up a set of boxes um, in a way that you know a, a, a human a normal human would probably have trouble doing if they're not Jason Bourne. But my suspicion is that Atlas wouldn't be able to do that unless the boxes are just the right height, in just the right place, and that the Atlas has a map in its head that's been pre-programmed of those boxes. Um, And what the sort of the broader criticism is that the videos that Boston Dynamics put out, which are very impressive and are extremely impressive displays of just mechanical engineering prowess, is that those are kind of they're the absolute best case scenario that they can achieve in a scripted environment and if you asked a robot to you know, jump over that bench or you know, even walk out of this room or walk across Central Park it wouldn't have a hope they're just not there yet but the videos kind of make it look like they are
1: so what does Boston Dynamics say in response? We at The Economist emailed them for a comment, and sadly, they did not provide one to us. But then they also have a tradition of actually not responding to such comments in the press. So, Hal, to you, is Boston Dynamics particularly secretive about their processes and the limitations of their creations? Or is this characteristic of the consumer robotics sector? Is it just
0: the business that they're in. When you when you're talking about robotics and AI, there's just endless BS um, where, you know, there are sort of these publicity stunts where people put robots in front of juries or bring them to parliament or have press conferences with robots. And you know, that th- you may as well have a press conference with a toaster. It's an incredibly stupid thing to do. And so I kind of see that what Boston Dynamics is doing is a little bit similar to that. Now, I could be wrong in my criticisms and actually these Atlas robots could, you know, run around the coffee shop I'm in and sit down and vault over the benches, but I really don't think so. And while they've been somewhat open, what they do is they don't... I've never seen them address these specific questions about whether their robots are able to do these stunts in any way more generally than the specific setups that they have in their videos.
1: So last but not least in today's update from the realm of nearly humanoid automatons, this week a robot named Pepper also produced by SoftBank, appeared in Britain's House of Commons to answer questions from members of Parliament about the role of robots in school classrooms.
2: Pepper, what is the role for humans in the fourth industrial revolution?
1: Robots will have an important role to play, but we will always need the soft skills that are unique to humans. Pepper is billed as the world's first quote-unquote culturally aware robot. How?
0: What does that mean? I mean, Ken, this drives me nuts. Like, I'm getting mad just sitting here hearing you say it. Like, uh, it, it, this is a stunt, and you know, it would be fine if it was billed as a stunt. But I think real people, just like the Boston Dynamics videos, real people are going to come away from this thinking that we live in a world where robots can answer real questions from real politicians in real time, and that they have the intelligence to do that. And that's just not true. I mean. What happened with Pepper in front of the Parliament in the UK, like, you may as well have just put a dictaphone up there and got it to answer questions. It's about on that level.
1: Hal, there is something good about all of this, and we should not lose sight of it. It's brought us together. Typically on the Babbage podcast, we clash over almost everything, particularly privacy. But here, I agree with you 100%.
0: I'm very happy about that. We can all agree that you know skepticism is warranted in this case.
1: Fantastic. Look, Hal, it is always great to chat with you. Enjoy your coffee. Thank you very much.
0: Cheers, Ken. Thanks for having me on.
1: And that's all for this edition of Babbage. If you like our journalism, subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist.